0: from PRX.
1: Today on Studio 360...
2: So I won't have any breakfast, maybe just a little tea, like when you have to go and get a colonoscopy...
1: Would a masterclass on creating it's one of the musical theater staples, a person, the patter song. No a patter song
3: is like a tap dance. You have to lean forward, you have to listen, you're just entertained
1: so much. Our teacher, Tony Award winning composer David Yazbek. Plus why MacArthur genius Taylor Mac's wild new play also belongs on Broadway. I write all my work for Broadway, if I'm honest.
0: I think Broadway's the queerest thing ever. You know, it's, the size of it allows for something that isn't being controlled by the Puritan dominance over expression.
1: Taylor Mac on creating Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. That and more is ahead on today's Studio 360, all about the theater, right after this. Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of gardening. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, piece. Very well done. Editing is all
0: about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360.
2: With Kurt Anderson.
0: I'm just a Broadway baby. Walking off my tired
3: feet, pounding 42nd Street,
1: to be in a show. <laughs> the Tony Awards are imminent, as is the season of nonstop theater festivals. So, let's put on a Studio 360 show about the theater. First, how do you build a Broadway musical? Composers have toolkits with standard components. If you want the audience to fall in love with your lead, you write a charm song.
3: All I want is a room somewhere Far away from the cold night air
1: If you want your leads to fall in love with each other, you write a ballad.
3: If I loved you time
1: and again, I would try to say. But if you're a composer who wants everyone to fall in love with both a character and your own dexterity, then you write a certain kind of jam packed, rapid fire, tongue twisting number known as the Patter Song.
2: I had not seen you take Geraldine on the lake in your flat-bottom skiff, if you were not found to sue with your arms around her bare midriff, if I had not seen you pen sexy letters to Gwen in your own hieroglyph, if you had not left me home when you had two seats for South Pacific.
4: A patter song is a song that parallels The rhythms and the texture of speech rather than being based on the typical rhythms and textures of music alone. And so it's speak singing in a sense rather than the kind of music that's all about the music with the words coming
1: second. A fellow you've heard before on our show, John McWhorter, teaches linguistics at Columbia University. He is also a fan of musical theater. A super fan.
4: Yeah, I've got about 950 cast recordings, you know, two-thirds of my social life I met through show music in one way
1: or another. So before we go deep on a patter song that's being sung right now every night on Broadway, John McWhorter is the perfect person to provide a brief Patter Song 101.
4: The idea is for somebody to spray you with verbiage, often with a rather tick-tock rhythm, which is more typical of the way we speak, as opposed to a song such as Some Enchanted Evening, where the notes are long.
0: Some Enchanted Evening, you may see
4: No one, at least I hope, no one talks that way. Generally, when you talk about a patter song, you don't only mean speech, you mean relatively rapid speech. And so it tends to be somebody who's giving you a kind of galloping word salad.
2: Can't stop telling about him and yelling about him and telling about him. I can't stop hollering over the moment that we met. He had a pinstripe. What do you call
0: it? A beautiful smile a barrel of money. I can't stop talking about him yet. Kiss me and a bear.
4: We most associate the patter song in terms of its archaeology with the magnificent examples of Gilbert and Sullivan in the late 19th century, such as I am the very model of a modern major general from Pirates of Penzance, which was massively popular. This was the Hamilton of its time.
0: I am the very model of a modern major general. I have information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England. I can quote the fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical.
4: But the idea was for a guy to come out and speak What he is. Is he going to sing it as a ballad? That wouldn't feel like what this major general would say. That's not how the major general would communicate. Is he going to come out and just dance about it? No, because that doesn't communicate enough. And so what he does is he comes out and he does this galloping patter song over a melody that's nice, but nobody would want to listen to the melody by itself. Really, it's about him talking to us in song quickly in a way that dazzles you as a feat as well as being witty.
3: I know I'm I'm mythic history, King Arthur's answer paradox. I answer hard acrostics, I have a pretty for paradox. I quote in Elliot Jark's all the crimes of Heliogabalus and Connick's I can flaw peculiarities, parabolas.
4: Early composers of what we now would call musical theater, they would yoke that form to more American styles of music. A beautiful example of this was Tchaikovsky, which is just this dazzling sequence of actual Russian composers' names that Danny Kaye sang in Lady in the Dark in
0: 1941. And
4: as it happens, that same year... He did a similarly pyrotechnic patter song by Cole Porter called Let's Not Talk About Love.
3: Why not discuss my deary, The Life of Wallace Fiery, or bring a Jared Bohem on and write a drunken poem on astrology,
2: mythology, geology, philology, pathology, psychology, electrophysiology, spermology, phrenology. I owe you an apology, but let's not talk about
4: <sighs> So that was definitely something that comes from the fact that Cole Porter was somebody who grew up with Gilbert and Sullivan as mother's milk.
1: And the next thing you know, your son is playing for money in a pinchback suit. And listening to some big out-of-town Jasper, hearing him tell about horse race gambling.
4: An example of a patter song in Golden Age Broadway that everybody would think of would be You Got Trouble from The Music Man. Harold Hill is a grifter, and he comes into this small town and what he has to do is get everybody worried that their children are idling and that they need something to do. He has to get up and do something really dazzling. He has to stand out. Well, then he's going to do this patter number. He's going to sound almost like an auctioneer, and it sets him off as interesting.
1: Get the ball in the pocket. Never mind getting dandelions pulled or the screen door patched or the beach take pounded. Never mind pumping any water till your parents are caught with the cistern empty on a Saturday night, and that's trouble. Yes, you got
4: My favorite Broadway patter song is from Stephen. Sondheim's company, and that's Getting Married Today, where somebody doesn't want to get married and explains it in this absolutely frantic patter song.
2: Listen, everybody, look, I don't know what you're waiting for. A wedding, what's a wedding? It's a prehistoric, ritual. Everybody promises fidelity forever, which is maybe the most horrifying word I've ever heard, which is followed by a honeymoon, where suddenly you realize you saddle with a nut and want to kill me, but you should. Thanks a bunch, but I'm not getting married. Go have lunch, because
4: i This person is gabbing. She's just going through this kind of logoria that real people often do when they're about to go out of their mind. So how do you show that somebody's going crazy? You use a patter song, and a patter song that goes really quickly, and because you had the advantage of amplification back then, she wouldn't have had to push as hard as she would have, say, 20 years before.
2: Listen, everybody, I'm afraid you didn't hear it. You'd want to see a crazy lady fall apart in front of you. It isn't only Paul who will be ruining his life. You know, we'll both of us be losing our identities. I tell him i an analyst about it, and he said to see a money but of money will be floating in the Hudson with the other garbage. I'm not well, so I'm not getting married. You've been swell, but I'm not getting married. Clear the hall, because I'm not getting married. Thank you all, but I'm not getting married. And don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married
4: I think a great many people, especially these days, find song in musical theater a little bit affected. You know, your 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 grandmother took you to Wicked and it'll do, but still what's the singing? Especially that kind of singing. And so then if you have a musical where suddenly somebody comes out and
1: talks. In a
4: way, you can relax, even if the words are going by relatively quickly,
1: because it sounds like talking. It's a snack. John McWhorter is a linguistics professor and the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Lexicon Valley, as well as an occasional singer in public of obscure Broadway show tunes.
3: I know what's going to happen. I'll try to go to bed with fear of failure flapping like a fruit bat in my head. I'll sleep for half an hour. The clock will ring at 6. I'll wake up in the shower with a stomach full of bricks.
1: That is What's Gonna Happen, a patter song from the new Broadway musical Tootsie, which is an adaptation of the 1982 Dustin Hoffman movie. It is by the composer and lyricist David Yazbek, who won a Tony last year for the show The Band's Visit. And this year, he's up for another one for Tootsie, thanks to delightful songs like this. So, we asked David to come into the studio to give us the master class on writing a patter song and talk us through exactly what's going on in this one. There's a
3: severely neurotic and insecure and high-energy young actress. The character is an actress. She is getting ready to audition for a very, very important part to her in a Broadway musical. And her friend and sort of mentor, Michael Dorsey, who's the, you know, the main character, character. he's going to help her out. And so they try a few lines. She's um, immediately hates herself and self-judging. He says, look, you know, it'll be okay. And she says, no, it won't. And then she goes into a long patter song about what's going to happen.
1: Well, before we talk any more about it, we play and perform this song with your musical director, Andrea Grody, who is at the big Steinway Grand. If it's a Steinway. I'm it nice. is a Steinway. Oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. She'll
3: play. I'll sing. You'll listen. We're we'll all going to have a great time. Maybe. I know what's gonna happen I'll try to go to bed With fear of failure flapping Like a fruit bat in my head I'll sleep for half an hour The clock will ring at six I'll wake up in the shower With a stomach full of bricks So I won't have any breakfast Maybe just a little tea Like when you have to go And get a colonoscopy Which incidentally isn't half As disconcerting or upsetting As going for a part You know there's no way that you're getting But anyway I'm heading Downtown for the audition Where everything I'm dreading Will be coming to fruition And here's what's gonna happen I'll walk in weak with hunger And there's a dozen girls who look like me, but 10 years younger. I'll go into the bathroom, and I'll try to vocalize. And I'll be singing, minga, 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 But I'll be hearing, Sandy sucks, really sucks, really, really, really blows. And she's old, and she's lame, and then someone calls my name. And here's what happens. I walk into the room, the gross fluorescent lighting, as inviting as a tomb. And everybody smiles. They say, it's good to see you. But all I'll see is judges, and they'll all look like Scalia. And then a little banter as they look me up and down. And somewhere through the fog of insecurity and hate. I'll try to convince them that I'm charming and clever and fun to have around but I'm starting to unravel in my head I hear the gavel. Guilty they're gonna throw the book at me cause I'm guilty of coming in and wasting all their time. Guilty of almost every other showbiz crime not young enough, not thin enough, not pretty enough not good enough. We hereby sentence you to a lifetime of waiting tables and debilitating self-loathing but wait now someone's asking so can we hear your voice I'll make a lame attempt at humor do I have a choice I nod at the pianist he's always wearing black he's always in a turtleneck with dandruff on his back no sooner do I get my note and open up my trap then inevitably some mealy mouth assistant director's thumbs are all over his iPhone and I know he's probably tweeting lol this girl is crap she's a fake she's a phony she'll never win a Tony and now I'm in a place I know quite well I've left the world and I've entered hell I'm this far away From a fainting spell But just before I die I finish the song Which I oversell Somebody says thanks And wishes me well The next thing I know I'm at Taco Bell Stuffing my face with meat I'm trying to take it slowly. I'm trying to be my best. I'm trying to be more holy, less bitter and depressed. I'm reading Eckhart Tolle. He makes a lot of sense. I bought a Buddhist bowl. He says it helps you be less tense. It doesn't do a thing for me. I sit there on the floor and watch a vivid sequence of humiliating incidents from my past go by and think what kind of masochist keeps coming back for more when she knows what doesn't happen because it always never happens because it always, always, always No, I know what's gonna happen Don't tell me that I don't And don't say that I'll rise to the occasion Cause I won't And don't say I got talent And don't say I got heart And don't say that I'm clever Cause I know I'm pretty smart I'm smart enough to know that I'm too stupid to admit You can't survive a diet That consists of eating shit The trick is knowing when It's time to pack your bags And say that's it You know what's gonna happen I know what's gonna happen Here's what's gonna happen I quit
1: I quit I quit Fantabulous. (laughs) Fantabulous. Oof. <laughs> Oof-a. That was the the author himself singing his fabulous song. It's almost like a happen. punishment
3: that I had to sing the song that no. I wrote.
1: Although different than the actress in the show, does it? Uh,
3: yeah. <laughs> like two octaves lower or something. She does it much, much better than me. And she is. And that's Sarah Styles, and she is Tony nominated and deserves it because it's an incredible comic turn and She does this song every night without dying. So she deserves like a J.D. Powers Award just for that,
1: I think, or a Nobel Prize or something. You have now taken your musical partner's place here at the Steinway. So I want you, there you are. I want you to uh, talk through in exquisite, maybe excruciating detail about how you made this song. Well, with this song, I felt a patter
3: song here early on like, you know, months before I, I wrote it. It sums up the character very nicely when you first meet her, so you really know what you're getting in for. A patter song can serve a lot of purposes. It can tell you something about a backstory or a story or a character, but it also serves like a tap dance, you know? You're just entertained so much, so you have to lean forward. You have to listen.
1: right. So you decide this scene is going to be in the show. It's going to be a patter song. I mean, what? You sit down at a piano and begin... How does it... What happens first? I just remember having this feeling
3: with this song of, ooh, mambo. Like, if I can start with just the simplest little, you know, mambo phrase, you know... Almost like you turned on... Uh, your toy electric organ and it just started playing something yeah it's just this happy little shake your booty kind of dance and she's about to sing about how energetically
1: miserable (laughs) she is so you have the the conga mambo thing yeah then do you work out the whole song or or then what I'm pretty sure
3: the line I know what's gonna happen came first it's so perfect it's just like no matter what you do to try to encourage me You know It's self-fulfilling prophecy, and I think I knew that that would be the first line of the song because one of the things you look for as a songwriter is a way to make a song that's structured with the right kind of repetition uh, musically as well as lyrically sometimes because people are hearing it for the first time. As soon as you realize what the engine is that's driving you, even if it's very complicated, once you know what it is, you can click in so I knew that a sim- really simple chord progression, it's, it's basically just one, five, one, five, one, and then a four sometimes. It's, what does that th- mean?
1: <practically coded>
3: <sounds> that's five. That's one. <laughs> it's two chords until it goes, It goes to four. There's a few other little chords in there, but it's so simple because I knew that you'd have all this complex lyrics writing on top of it. And then comes the hard part. You know, you, you sort of write that first verse or maybe it ends up being the second verse or and you realize, oh, here's a structure. Here's a verse structure. I know what's going to happen. I'll try to go to bed with fear of failure flapping like a fruit bat in my head. I'll sleep for half an hour. The clock will ring at six. I'll wake up in the shower with a stomach full of bricks. It's like, oh, that's a simple rhyme scheme. It came up very naturally. And then it's really easy. Even You can't even help it. You Subconsciously, you're working on it when you're eating or when you're walking and things bubble up
1: and then you, you're you in a car, so you, you write some more. Stephen Sondheim, in his patter songs that he's done, uh, doesn't always rhyme. Do you feel the need to always rhyme? No. Um,
3: I wrote a patter song for uh, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown.
1: Your Broadway musical adaptation of another 80s movie by Pedro Almodovar. It's
3: another neurotic woman, but she's like running all over Madrid and picking up... Pay phones in different places to leave messages for her friend. So, with that song, I came up with the engine for that song, which is very Spanish sounding. It's, if I can remember the, how to play it, I think it was like uh, Peppa, i picking up the phone. My the brain is gonna melt if I don't talk to you. I've got a pro. And, and it's very fast. There's a, a rhyme every now and then, just to hold it together a little bit. But it's really just almost a babbling flow of thoughtless thought. And it doesn't need the rhyme at all. It does have a certain kind of repetition that is
1: funny. And that gives you some structure. I mean, it's hard to sing. They're so dense and rapid and so many words to memorize and everything else. Do you have to worry about that? Like, whoa, is she going to be able to do this?
3: Yes. um, I really did worry about it while I was writing it. At the same time, even without knowing who the actor was... I just had this almost sadistic feeling of like, well, let's see what the, you know what they can do. I'm going to write it really hard. If we need to cut something here and there to take a breath, so be it. But I'm going to just see if they can run the marathon. And I lucked out. Sarah Styles could. Sarah Styles ran the marathon almost the first time she sang the song. Really? You
1: didn't and you didn't trim or nip and tuck to make it easier? I
3: think I probably took out one or two words to give her a breath here and there but you can already hear that I would sort of blew out my voice singing it once. She does it eight times a week. I know what's going to happen, so tell me that I don't. And don't say that I'll rise to the occasion, because I won't. And don't say I've got talent, and don't say I've got heart, and don't say that I'm clever, because I know I'm pretty smart.
1: Seems that writing a Patter song would be especially fun. Yeah, it can
3: be, yeah. You know, I, my first job out of college was writing for Letterman. I was a gag writer, basically, and if you get a thrill out of cleverness or, more importantly, what you consider to be true funniness, um, whether it's a joke or, you know, a lyric, then it's tremendous fun. And you find yourself trying to top yourself or sometimes patting yourself on the back. You know, there are times when you're sitting there and you can't help saying, good job, guy, you know. Do the audiences and their
1: reactions have any effect on what you do?
3: Yeah, because it's a comedy. I mean, the audience is going to tell you what's working and what isn't working, and they're, you can rely on it most of the time. With Tootsie, we had a very interesting problem, which is like a happy problem, which is too many jokes, like too funny. With a comedy song, it's really tricky, because you're stuck on the rhythm, so the, the composer has to listen and decide, oh, I'm going to cut that joke so they can continue laughing and then hear this lyric coming up in the next verse— It becomes an interesting equation.
1: Uh, Are there some songs that you sometimes write that are just too funny in a maybe abstruse way? There is a lyric in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yet another 80s movie turned into a Broadway musical with songs
3: you wrote. Which I wrote, and there's a song called Chimp in a Suit. I loved it so much, but it never landed the way we thought it should have. It was too clever by half, you know? Uh, I think it went... It was like... uh, yeah, it was a jazz waltz, right? They dress up a monkey in Armani He may seem precocious and cute cute. But despite all that primping You still got a chimp in a suit And there's all these, you know Take him to see Don Giovanni Show him Cezanne's lovely fruit People will gape But you still got an ape in a suit I love that um, it, it really works on the record When you can just sit and listen to it. But there was something, it took so much to concentrate and focus. You know, there's a line like um, dampen him well in a quart of Chanel, but you're still gonna get a stench. Spritz him till wet with some eau de toilette, Uh, it won't cover
1: the smell. I should know I'm French. David Yazbek, uh, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you uh, for coming in and doing this and talking about this. You're quite welcome. David Yazbek is the composer and lyricist for Tootsie, which is running now on Broadway and will launch a national tour next year. Coming up next, Taylor Mack wrote a sequel to Shakespeare's least popular play but Taylor was not the first person to be inspired by it.
0: You know, the other thing is that Steve Bannon was, uh, at one point in his life, was kind of obsessed with Titus Andronicus. He turned the Donald Trump campaign and the presidency into a bit of a revenge tragedy against Obama.
1: Playwright and actor and artist Taylor Mack on Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. That's next on Studio 360.
4: Studio 360.
1: No job title is big enough to handle Taylor Mac. I first became aware of him as a kind of drag vaudevillian. Since then, he was named a MacArthur Genius and got a Pulitzer Prize nomination for his theatrical masterwork, A 24-Decade History of Popular Music, which was a 24-hour American spectacular that combined song and dance and drag. No praise, no Taylor Maxs latest work is a play, and for the first time, that wild, singular sensibility is on Broadway. It stars Nathan Lane, Christine Nielsen, and Julie White. It's called Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. And as the title suggests, it takes place right after the events of Shakespeare's grisliest tragedy.
2: Hello, Janice. My name
3: is Hillary!
1: It opens with a giant pile of corpses and ends with a dance number featuring choreographed prosthetic penises. In between, it blends debates about art and politics and the nature of existence with fart jokes and projectile vomiting. It is only 90 minutes long, and somehow it all works.
0: You make a cut in the main artery. I prefer the armpit to the groin as it seems less invasive. Just seems if this is the kind of thing you've got to do on the regular, you might not be living your best life.
1: <laughs> so, first off, I just explained a little bit about Gary, but give a little more sense of what it's about and, and, and what happens during this... Uh, remarkable hour and, wow. and a half. Wow.
0: <laughs> um, it's really just about a, a, a clown uh, that gets a promotion to the role of maid <laughs> and uh, wants to even get a, a bigger promotion to the role of a fool. Um, he says a, a, a fool is a clown with ambition, Yeah. And uh, he just really wants to make a difference in the world. He's had this near-death experience when the coup happens. and uh, he, he, in,
1: in the play, in, in Titus. In, in
0: Titus Andronicus, he's a, very, he's a minor character that has about 13 lines. The most,
1: um, like, as minor as you can get, practically.
0: Yeah. But in Shakespeare's play, he comes on, he's some comic relief, and then they, they kind of use him uh, to be a, a, a messenger. Message. And then he gets sent off to be hanged.
1: Right. And in fact, such a minor character. we searched for, like, oh, let's get a clip of the real guy. And the one we could find, the only one we could find was from a 1985 BBC adaptation oh of Titus Andronicus. And this is <laughs> yes. Tim Potter playing the clown. I haven't seen this. God and Steve and give you Godine. I have brought you a letter. And there are a couple of pigeons here. <laughs> Go! Take him away and hang him! him! How much money must I have? Come, up you must be hanged. Hanged by Our Lady.
3: Then I have brought up a neck to a fair
4: end. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny to me.
1: I mean, they're playing it for laughs.
0: They're playing for... it for laughs. Uh, I don't... I find... I mean, it's Elizabethan, right? So, of course, he's got this Cockney accent or this weird kind of Scottish hybrid Cockney. And it's, again, an Elizabethan interpretation of the Roman Empire. And what I find very delightful about my play, <laughs> and the style that it's written in, and that we use Cockney accents to is that it is is like an American burlesque of uh, Elizabethan interpretation of the Roman Empire, which feels right. like sequel, sequel, sequel. Right. You know,
1: American burlesque may be derived from English music hall. Tradition, yeah, sure. You know, yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, yeah to stick yeah. that in
0: there. So, it, it, you know, he's a casualty of these um people in power who are just um, playing with the pawns. And so I decided to write a play about him. I just fell in love with right. the idea of
1: a clown trying to
0: make a difference in the world.
1: What got you to Oh, Titus Andronicus. Oh, this character. Oh, a whole play about him. I mean, that doesn't seem like a... Did that come fully formed as a notion?
0: No, I was thinking about um, the cycles of revenge.
1: In the world, in real life.
0: In real life. And I I went to one of the um, more popular revenge tragedies in the canon and read it and then uh, fell in love with this clown and decided that I would try to uh, write a revenge tragedy on... Titus Andronicus. You know, the other thing is that Steve Bannon was, uh, at one point in his life, was kind of obsessed with Titus Andronicus. The Steve Bannon of recent yeah.
1: White House fame.
0: Yes, exactly. Produced one. Produced he, one. He produced the... He was a producer on the Julie Tamer Titus.
1: Which was a film in 1999,
0: yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he turned the Donald Trump campaign and the presidency into a bit of a revenge tragedy against Obama and, you know, and so the elite and, and the elite, oh, those coastal elites of which, which
1: he is a member. Of course, of
0: course. So it's, you know, there's a lot in here as a way to talk about our current time.
1: Yeah. You know. So this grisly, ghastly comedy, that doesn't seem like you necessarily go to the Broadway money people and they just go, yes, let's put this on Broadway. How did you convince them to do that? <laughs> I didn't.
0: I really. I sat down with Scott Rudin. We had a meeting about something else. Who
1: produces all smart shows on Broadway? Uh, essentially,
0: yeah. I really, you know, I got a hand it to him. I gave him the play, and two days later, he called. He said, "I want to take it Broadway." So it was really his idea, although I can't say that I didn't have it in the back of my brain. I write all my work for Broadway, if I'm honest. Really? I I do, yeah. Everything I've ever written, all all my plays, all 17 works, I've always imagined that they'd be on Broadway. (laughs) Well, now the world has caught up with you, and here you are.
1: I mean, that must feel pretty great that you're quixotic... Impossible dream has been realized.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I just think it's queer. I think Broadway's the queerest thing ever. You know, it's the the size of it allows for queer expression. Oh. Uh, the size of it allows for something that isn't being controlled by the puritan. Dominance over expression—that's you know? so interesting. Minorities in America, in order to survive, have to express themselves louder. In order to be seen, we have to be a little bit louder, a little bit bigger. And so we know how to fill the big space, that's, right? That's but we're always I relegated to the basement bar or the, you yeah. know, the little theaters. But
1: not anymore. But not anymore. <laughs> um, Gary and one of the two other characters, Janice, have the job of preparing all these dozens, scores, hundreds of bodies, I guess, for burial and. You, I noticed, used to work as a house cleaner before you were Taylor Mac. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Genius. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 did, did any of that experience, cleaning up, inform like your sense of what these people would feel like just doing their jobs?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's in the play as well. Is all those years I had survival jobs, and and you got to do a, the dirty work for other people who have just more money than you. Yeah. you know. I mean, I, I, I don't want to disparage uh, cleaners. I think they're or the rich great people, people in the world. but <laughs> Or rich. Well, no, I don't mind. I mean, I'm rich now. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to mind McCarthy. But uh, in that sense, uh, you got the cleaner, who's Janice, that's also part of me. Uh, yeah. and, and then you have the person who's the bit more of a clown wanting to be a fool, revolutionary, which is also part of me.
1: So sequel companion plays to famous plays has become kind of a modern mini genre. There's um, recently the Lucas Nath Doll's House Part 2. There was, of course, the brilliant 52 years ago, I think, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern Are Dead Tom mm-hmm. Stoppard. Once you decided to do this, did you think, Oh, I'm doing a kind of a Rosencrantz thing? You know, I never
0: even once thought about that. Really? And I know it's it sounds ridiculous that I wouldn't have <laughs> yeah. thought about it. But I think I, I had you know, he was talking about nobles that were small characters. You know, I wanted to talk about the people who are unseen, not the people who are existentially part right. of the status quo. <laughs> right. <laughs> you
1: know? So the the election of Donald Trump and as I understand it, your, your mother, uh, mm-hmm. her, her death, yeah, uh, were, were together were part of the inception for this.
0: Yeah, well, I finished the twenty-four hour concert that I performed in two thousand sixteen, and then my mom was dying at the time, so I I had to fly to California and do uh, hospice work for her. She was a Christian Scientist, so that
1: the central premise of whose faith is that medical uh, intervention is really not called for.
0: Yeah, that it's that we're spiritual beings, not material beings, and so the idea is that you know we faith in God will heal us and stuff. So, so her cancer didn't exist to her, and we weren't allowed to acknowledge it. And then I was, you know, watching the news and the election, and it just seemed like we're not acknowledging the reality of our world right now and what's happening. And I had just experienced the twenty-four hour show, which was this manifestation of. A beautiful collaboration, and the combination of those three things. And then I went to Mexico, and a corpse washed up onto the beach when I was jogging. A tourist had died, and in the surf, and it was the second corpse I, you know, um, had to kind of encounter in a, uh, a few weeks. And so I, I just all of that kind of just. F- Fit into what I was thinking about revenge tragedy and what I wanted to do with it. And so I I put it all into a play.
1: And a fun Broadway production. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, why not? (laughs) Uh, Taylor Mack, a pleasure, as always. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Taylor Mack's play, Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, starring Nathan Lane and Christine Nielsen and Julie White, is on Broadway right now. Coming up next, from Taylor Mac's subversive take on Shakespeare, we go now to the real thing, performed outside. Indoors, it's a far more polite audience. They're more focused on the plays. We are living in a golden age of outdoor Shakespeare, an annual festival palooza. So how did that happen Exactly. And how do actors make all the world a stage when they're outside? Outdoors, you're really throwing it out
3: there at them. And it produces a great deal of energy between the audience and the players.
1: Good evening, Audrey.
0: (laughs) Gotcha. Good evening, William.
1: That is next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Who wrote about the winter of our discontent? Oh, right, Shakespeare, Richard III, Act One, Scene One. Which is apt because for me and lots of other people, going to see a Shakespeare play outdoors at dusk in the breezes—that is life made glorious. Summer. But how Shakespeare became such an American summer fixture is an interesting tale containing some sound and fury, signifying lots. A tale told for us by Richard Paul.
2: There was a time when you would have been arrested for watching Shakespeare in public.
4: They banned theater along with cockfighting and gambling, horse racing, all of those things.
2: That's Heather Nathans, chair of the Performing Arts Department at Tufts University, and she's talking about Congress. In 1774, Congress banned theater. But even in 1774, the ban was part of a long American tradition. When Pennsylvania was first set up, Dr. Nathan says they didn't allow theater.
1: The
4: same thing happens with the Puritans in New England. They immediately say, no theater.
2: I'm not going to get into all the details about why. Short version is Quakers and Puritans believed that actors, I swear to God, shot magic beams into the eyes and ears of spectators that altered the contents of their hearts. An actor could make your brain contract, and that's why you'd cry at a play. There's a longer explanation, but the important part is they really didn't want it going on. Even after science dispelled those ideas, even after the federal ban ended at the end of the Revolutionary War and theaters started opening, especially in the southern states.
1: There's still a strong anti-theatrical prejudice that carries over from older suspicions about the theater from the Puritans and Quakers.
2: Jay Cook is a history professor at the University of Michigan. That whiff of impropriety, he says, makes theater a particularly gendered space.
1: The people who go to the theater in the century. 30s, 1840s in places like New York, Boston, Philadelphia, tended to be men.
2: And all those men attracted a certain kind of women. You'd find them, Heather Nathan says, mostly in the balconies.
1: The sort of disreputable light women
4: who are coming to troll for customers.
2: Michael Dobson is director of the Shakespeare Institute at the University of Birmingham in England. He says that the ancestors of today's Shakespeare festivals were a group of wealthy British outdoor enthusiasts who called themselves the Pastoral Players. The Pastoral Players were Oscar Wilde and a lot of his friends who thought that they'd like to do something beautiful and true to nature in a private wood uh, with the Prince of Wales paying for the costumes.
1: Young man... Have you challenged Charles the Wrestler?
3: No, fair princess. He is the general challenger. I come but in, as others do, to try with him the strength of my youth.
2: The pastoral players kicked off outdoor Shakespeare, but they are not who finally kicked it into high gear. Credit for that goes to someone whose father originally wanted him to enter the clergy, Sir Philip Barling Ben Greet.
1: I do
0: much wonder... That one man...
2: This is him recorded on an Edison disc doing Benedict's speech from Much Ado About Nothing.
0: Seeing how much another man is a fool when he dedicates his behaviors to love...
2: Ben Greet recognised that there was commercial potential in this and that it would attract
3: audiences who thought that show business was corrupt and wicked.
2: Greet was really active in something called the Church and Stage Society that Dobson says... ...wanted to make peace between high culture theatre and Sunday schools. Greet's solution was to do his plays not in the dark, where who knows what else was going on, but outside, under God's blue sky. It worked like gangbusters, and in 1902, greet was noticed by a producer who would take his company and the tradition of performing outdoor Shakespeare to this side of the Atlantic. New
4: York society and New York lovers of the drama to the number of 3,500
2: sat in the sun and witnessed a production novel to this city. The forest scenes from As You Like It. This is the New York Herald Tribune describing the first-ever professional outdoor performance of Shakespeare in America. Ben greets woodland players at Columbia University in May 1903. After a tour of North America that eventually led to the White House lawn, Greet found himself to be a solution to a problem that the Methodist founders of the Chautauqua Circuit had been trying to solve for 35 years. This is all going to sound familiar. The Methodists had an amusement ban. You could be expelled from the church for going to the theater. The ban hinged on a concern about frivolity. But Chautauqua had 45 million Americans coming to their summer camps, and they needed something to do in the evening. There was a huge sense that leisure time was a problem that had to be addressed. That's Charlotte Canning, a professor in the theater department at UT Austin.
3: And within that context of reform and the Christian social gospel, there was a sense that all those things had to be brought together for leisure to be appropriate, to be improving, which is really why Shakespeare becomes the first fully-staged theatrical productions, because there was no literature more improving and more moral than Shakespeare.
1: There is a play tonight before the king. One scene
0: of it comes near the circumstance which I have... Enter
2: the man from the British Church and Stage Society, Ben Greet, who, remember, did his Shakespeare outside.
3: Outdoor theater is somehow more improving than theater in an architectural space.
2: This was also when live theater was going head-to-head for the first time with the movies. A lot of theater directors thought that the best way to compete was to offer what movies couldn't, live people on stage. This led to the building of outdoor Shakespeare venues around the country. A leader of this movement, William Pohl, heavily influenced another director, B. Iden Payne, who ended up teaching Angus Baumer, the man who started the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Sir, you have wrestled well and overthrown more
4: than your enemies. Can you go, Cass? Uh, have with you. Fare you well.
2: <laughs> After the Oregon Festival, the Stratford Shakespeare Festival opened in Ontario in 1952. That same year, John Lithgow's father, Arthur, started an outdoor Shakespeare festival in Ohio.
0: Who knows not where to wasp but where his tail, in his tail,
3: in his tongue.
2: That's Arthur Lithgow in Taming of the Shrew in 1953 with Nancy Marchand, Tony Soprano's mother on The Sopranos. Girls, if you talk of tales,
1: and so farewell. What, with my tongue and your tail? Nay, come <laughs> up again. Good, Kate, I am a gentleman.
2: <laughs> at about the same time in the early 50s, a floor manager at CBS TV in New York named Joe Papp started driving around the city in a sanitation department truck hauling a wooden stage from borough to borough. The New York Shakespeare Festival Mobile Theater will be sent a midsummer night Dream. Tonight in your neighborhood at 8 p.m. One night he decided to drive the truck into Central Park. He tells the story here in a 1979 interview with opera singer. Beverly Sills.
1: We had opened that season with Romeo and Juliet. Where? In Central Park. At the, oh, you. There was no Delacorte Theater then. We just had this mobile unit. And did the city just allow you to, to drive in? and perform? Well, they kind of allowed me. I just drove in one night without them knowing it, and there was a cop on a horse when It came in about 2 o'clock in the morning, and we, we, bro- we brought this truck and just set it up, and there was a cop on a horse, and he saw me go by. He kind of looked at me kind of strangely, but he must have assumed nobody would come in with a huge 45-foot platform trailer without a permit. He just sort of gazed and kind of awed, and then I just waved to him, and we went on.
2: And this was the start of Shakespeare in the Park.
4: Why brand they us with bass? With baseness,
2: bastardy bass, bass! Audiences love Shakespeare in the Park. That's Raoul Julia, by the way, doing King Lear in 1973. But it could be a slog for actors.
4: And here I am putting on a play for you, and okay, you dig it, you don't dig it, we'll argue, if you want to argue, we'll argue, fine. If you want to boo
3: me, great, and I might boo you back.
2: Central Park could be a tough crowd back then, in more ways than one.
3: You're an actor, Max. You should be
2: doing Shakespeare in the Park. Remember this? Woody Allen and Tony Roberts and Annie Hall?
0: Oh, I did Shakespeare in the Park, Max. I got mugged. I was playing Richard II, and two guys with leather jackets stole my leotard.
2: Kenneth Turan wrote a book about the New York Shakespeare Festival. He told this story on the Folger Shakespeare Library Shakespeare Unlimited podcast to Barbara Bogave about an actress named... Brierly Lee.
3: Would not for the world they saw thee here. By whose direction foundst thou out this place? By love, who first
1: did... She was, tend to be a very intense actress, very into her parts.
3: Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face. And uh, a mind. torch
1: fell off and it caught the tail end of her dress. And it was starting to catch fire. This was during the death scene.
3: So Romeo's lying there dead.
1: Romeo's lying there dead. And he's also, unfortunately, the only person who's actually seeing that this is happening. You know, he finally said, well, I have to do something. You know, and she was so into the part that she had no idea this was going on. So he, you know, leaps up and puts out the fire and then goes back to being dead.
2: That's that's so New Yorkers will tell you they have the best outdoor Shakespeare, but it's certainly not the only one. There are four others in New York alone, including Shakespeare in the Parking Lot on the Lower East Side, Around the country, there are close to 60 outdoor Shakespeare festivals and venues.
1: Welcome to the 48th Annual Colorado Shakespeare Festival, presented and by and gentlemen, Blue Mountain
4: Arts. Welcome to the Alabama Shakespeare Festival.
2: Good evening, and ladies. From big ones like Shakespeare on the Common in Boston to teeny ones like the first Folio Shakespeare Festival in Oak Brook, Illinois. Welcome
1: to the 13th season of the Heart of America Shakespeare Festival. Good evening, we hope you ladies enjoy and gentlemen, and welcome
2: to the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival's 19th season. And, and the proliferation of outdoor Shakespeare venues has created a special outdoor Shakespeare performance style.
4: Firm and irrevocable is my doom which I have passed upon her. She is banished!
0: Pronounce that sentence that I made my me! I cannot live on her company!
4: You are a fool!
2: Scott Kaiser spent 27 seasons as director of voice and text at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival.
4: It's very unlike doing American realism in a small 300-seat house where, you know, tears can run down your cheeks and people understand what's going on. You know, in an outdoor space, you can't see, you know, minute muscular changes in the face. It's all reflected through voice and through body. And so you need to move through space and reflect your acting choices through you know, a full physical involvement and full vocal involvement.
3: die, are no common scenes. The heavens themselves
1: blaze forth the death of princes. Cowards die many times
2: before their death. Libby Apple was artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival from 1995 to 2007. She says for all the challenges of working this way, the advantages are clear.
1: Indoors, it's a
3: far more polite audience. They're more focused on the plays. Outdoors, you're really throwing it out there at them, and it produces a great deal of energy between the audience and the players.
1: Good evening, (laughs) Aubrey. Gotcha. Good evening, William. Good evening to you, sir. Good evening, gentle friend. That story was produced by Richard Paul and originally appeared on Shakespeare Unlimited, which is a podcast from the Folger Shakespeare Library. And that is it for this week's show. But before we go, i got to tell you that we are about to take Studio 360 outdoors. I'm serious. We are doing a live taping of this show on Saturday afternoon, June 8th, on the High Line in New York City. We'll have musicians and a comedian and musical comedians and me talking to them and to you. If you come, so do. You can get tickets and find out more about this live show at slate.com slash live. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. But it's really just almost a babbling flow of thoughtless thought. Our executive producer is
3: Jocelyn Gonzalez.
1: Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is
3: Sandra Lopez-Monsalve.
1: Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders,
4: Tommy Bazarian.
1: Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery.
4: And I am Kurt Anderson. He has to get up and do something really dazzling. He has to stand out. He's going to sound almost like an auctioneer. Thanks very much for listening. R-I, Public Radio International.
1: Next time on Studio 360, it's Hal's world. We just live in it. I am putting
0: myself to the fullest possible use, which is all I think that any conscious entity can ever
1: hope to do. Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey predicted so much of today. Do you talk to Alexa? No, because 2001, all I think about is Hal. Part two of our look at an American icon next time on Studio 360.